Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Last week, the Lord led me to give us a message on hope for a nation in crisis And we went to Psalm chapter 2. And as I was thinking about Psalm chapter 2, it took me to Acts chapter 4, where the early church prayed Psalm chapter 2. And so as I've been thinking about this, I felt like before we kind of leave this theme and and get back to the Gospel of Luke, we need to just kind of look at this for another week this morning as we look at Acts chapter 4. Last March and April when COVID hit and we had to shut down church, quote unquote, and we were forced to do live stream. And for a while there, it was, it was interesting. But then there came a point where we as elders and leaders struggled with, okay, when do we go back and meet in person? And it was during that time that I began to spend a lot of time in prayer. And we, as a church leadership, drafted a document about opening back up And what were the reasons why we should come back together? And we learned a lot from church history. Many of you are familiar with John Bunyan. John Bunyan is the one who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Well, back in 15, make sure I get my date right, 1593, the British Parliament passed the Conventicle Act of 1593. Now, what the king of England wanted to do at that time was to make sure that everybody in in Britain was under one denomination, under one church, the Anglican church, the Church of England. And so if you were what was called a nonconformist, if you were a Baptist or if you were some other group besides the Anglican church, you really had a lot of religious restrictions placed upon you and how you could worship. And so For a while there, that law just kind of went away, and there was about 60 years of of freedom. And then all of a sudden, the tolerance ended in 1660. And it was at this time that John Bunyan, a Baptist, began preaching. And the, the law said that you could not have church with five people or more outside your home of a different denomination besides the Church of England. And and John Bunyan, as a Baptist, said, listen, I've got a parish here. I've got people coming to my church. I'm going to preach, regardless of what the government says. And so he was tried in 1661 for preaching as a Baptist pastor. And he was indicted for, quote, here is what was held against him. He had several unlawful meetings to the great disturbance and distraction of the good subjects of this kingdom. Unlawful meetings. He was disturbing the peace. What was he doing? He was having church. He was sentenced to three months in prison, which was what the sentence was at that time. And he was told, if you just attend the Anglican church, if you stop being a Baptist pastor, if you stop gathering people for a Baptist church, just comply and everything will be okay. 
And of course, what did John Bunyan say? I can't do that. My conscience won't let me do that. We've got to continue to meet. We've got to continue to be a church. We can't just limit ourselves to five people. I've got to reach my community. And so he spent the next 12 years in prison for refusing to capitulate. And what what resonates with me about John Bunyan was that he had a blind daughter. He had a disabled daughter during this time. Most of his children were under 13 at that time. He spent 12 years in prison. And his wife tried many times to get him out, and she would appeal, and and all those. You can go back and read that. But for that period in history, the, the British Parliament cracked down on religious freedom. It wasn't during a time of a pandemic. They said, we're going to limit how you worship, we're going to limit when you worship, and we're going to tell you how many people can worship. And John Bunyan said, I'm not going to play that game. And he was forced to spend 12 years in prison. And there's some debate as to when he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Most people believe it was probably during that period when he was in prison that he wrote that famous book. I want you to think about all that has happened this past year. Where were we last year? Would we ever think last year this time that we would have a worldwide pandemic that there would be rioting in our streets this summer, that there would be this crazy presidential election and an insurrection on Capitol Hill, and that major tech companies would cancel the president and possibly come for you and me. And so in line is what we said last week in Psalm chapter 2, We need to remember as we move forward as a church, as we move forward as a nation, that Jesus is king. Jesus is on his throne. He's in charge. We must find refuge in him. We must submit to him as the king of kings and lord of lords and bow to him alone. But as your pastor, one of my chief goals is to prepare you for what lies ahead. To prepare all of us for the future, to help us navigate through these difficult waters that we find ourselves swimming in. I don't know if you feel it the way I do, but things are changing quickly, and we need to be prepared for what's coming. And one of my goals is to equip you. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, Paul says he gave the apostles, that's Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, that's what I am, I'm a shepherd teacher, a pastor teacher, to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So one of my goals is to equip you. I also have a biblical mandate upon me to lead you well. First Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Let the elders, let the pastors who who lead well. So God has, has put a burden on my heart to equip you and to lead you. So how do I do that? How do I do that faithfully? How do I equip us for what we're going to face in the near future? As a church, as a community, 
as families, as parents, as grandparents, as a nation? How do I do that? Now, what I'm going to share with you this morning is not earth-shattering. It's nothing new that you probably haven't heard before. It's not some big type of marketing strategy or church growth scheme that I got from a book somewhere. This comes directly from the Scriptures. So what I want us to do this morning is I just want to remind us as a church family about three crucial and foundational values, three issues that we need to embrace, commit to as we move forward. It's a new year. We're going to have a new president. There's going to be a lot of changes. How do we, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, as God's people, how do we move forward together? And so we go to Acts chapter 4 this morning. And last week when we, when we looked at Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? We noticed that that was the prayer of the early church in Acts chapter 4. Now, in the opening books or in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, there's a lot going on. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes in power. There's Pentecost. People are getting saved. The gospel's advancing. Great things are happening in the world because the church is being on mission to reach the world. And all these things are going wonderfully. People are getting healed. The gospel's going on in power. Communities are being transformed. And the question in the book of Acts is, how does Satan like that? Is Satan going to sit back and just let it happen? No, he ramps up his attack. There's persecution, there's hostility, opposition comes against the infant church in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, the the two main apostles, they heal a man that's disabled. He's been disabled for 40 years. They heal him. It's miraculous, it's powerful. And they begin to preach Jesus and the resurrection and to proclaim the gospel with power. And people are getting saved and wonderful things are happening. And then we get to chapter 4 and all of a sudden the heat gets turned up on the activity of God through these two men. So let's pick up in Acts chapter 4 and we're going to read verses 1 through 12 to begin this morning. As they were speaking to the people... The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Talking about healing the man. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We find out in verse 2, Peter and John are proclaiming Jesus. They're preaching the gospel. They're telling people about Jesus. And how do the religious leaders respond to that? Verse 2, they're greatly annoyed. They're worn out to the point of exhaustion where they don't want to hear it anymore. I'm sick of hearing you talk about Jesus. Just stop it. Isn't that kind of the world we live in today? Stop talking about Jesus. Stop, Stop shoving your religion down my throat. I don't want to hear it. You're wearing me out with all this Jesus talk. Get over it. So they confront Peter and John, they arrest Peter and John, and they throw them in jail. Now, they can't dispute the fact that a man's been healed. That's not really the issue for these men. They can't dispute the miracle, the man's been healed. What bothers them is the message of Jesus. And so they go to trial the next day. And they're gathered in front of all these leaders, all these ominous, uh, uh, ominous leaders have got him there, and they're, they're staring at him. And they ask Peter a question. Don't ever ask Peter a question unless you want an answer. Peter's never been one to be silent. What do they ask Peter? Verse 7. Tell us. Tell us. By what power, by what, by what name did you do this? We can't deny it was a miracle, but we want to know who's behind this miraculous activity? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to you by a crippled man, what is that? What, 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 by what means has this been healed? By what means this man has been healed? But I want you to know verse 10. What does he say in verse 10? I love Peter. Let it be known to all of you and to all Israel. Peter says, I'm not mincing words. I want this to be known. I'm going to say it loud. I'm going to say it proud. So there's no confusion as to what I'm about to say. So here's the first thing that I want us to see as we move together as a church. It's the first of the C's. These all start with the letter C. Let us move forward together with a strong confession. A strong confession. Peter says, listen up. I'm not going to be shy about this. Let it be known. And then he goes on to preach the gospel. He gives a confession. He he confesses Jesus Christ. Notice what he says there. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised by the dead, this man is standing before you today. Peter goes straight to the historical event of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He says, listen, my confession is historical. It's rooted in the the facts of history that Jesus was a literal man from Nazareth. He literally died on a cross, and he literally rose again. This is my confession. It's historical. It's rooted in history. And Peter also says, my confession's offensive. You don't like it. Look at verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has now become the cornerstone. The the message of Jesus is offensive. People don't like it to hear that offensive message of the cross. It's foolishness to them. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly. That, That word is moronic, foolish. 
to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The confession is historical. Jesus died and rose again. This confession is offensive. People aren't going to like it. And then Peter says, on top of all that, this confession is exclusive. There's only one way of salvation. Notice what Peter says in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Can't get more clear than that. What did Jesus say about himself in John 14, 6? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way. I'm not one of many ways. I'm not a good way. I am the absolute only way. 1 John 5, 12. Well, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you have no life. He's the only way. There's salvation in no one else. And so... Peter is crystal clear on what the Christian faith is all about. He does not mince words. He doesn't water it down. He says, I want this to be known to all of you. And I'm going to say it loud. I'm going to say it proud. I'm going to say it so everybody can clearly understand the facts. Jesus died. He rose again. This message is offensive, but he's the only way of salvation. I'm not backing down. This is just after he'd been arrested, by the way. There's no ambiguity. You see, as we move forward as a church, the world is going to get very ambiguous and wishy-washy. The church is going to get very wishy-washy. There's going to be what I call a lot of evangelifish. A lot of evangelicals with no backbone. They're going to be afraid to stand up for a strong confession. Let me just say this loud and clear. This is no time to be wishy-washy, to be ambiguous, to have a lack of clarity. Now more than ever, we've got to stand up and say, this is what we believe. This is who we are. This is who we're not. This is who we are. This is, this is our confession. We've got to be clear about that. That's why every Sunday... We do the Baptist Catechism for children. We want little children from the time they're small to understand what they believe and why. Why do they believe the truths that they believe? Now, we as a church have a confession of faith. A confession of faith lays out clearly what we believe on key doctrinal points and details. And a few years ago, we as elders led the church through this process because here's the thing. A few years ago, we looked around at the culture and said, it's getting crazy. We, we want a clearly defined statement for Emmanuel Baptist Church so that future generations won't question where we stood today. So we, we had a, a statement of faith that's, that's very clear on where we stand. Now, a statement of faith is not equal to the Bible. It's a summary of what the Bible teaches so that you can hand it to somebody and say, oh, here's where you stand on these, 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 these different issues. And so maybe you are new to Emmanuel, and maybe you haven't read it in a long time, but we do have a confession of faith. As a matter of fact, after the service, if you want a copy of one out there on the resource table, there are copies of our confession of faith. You can also find it on the website as well. But Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager 
to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is one faith, and we need to be very clear about it. We need to have a strong confession. We don't mince words. We don't hold back. We're like Peter. I want everybody to know, so there's no confusion, no ambiguity. Over the past few years, this is what saddens me, we've seen so many professing Christian leaders fall away, deny some of the key doctrines of the faith. And it's no surprising that that's going to happen. You know, Jesus said in the last days, many will fall away. Matthew 24, 10 through 11. Then many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Are you ready for this, church? Are you ready to see a lot of people falling away here in the near future? Mark my words, it's going to happen. I don't know who it's going to be. But we need to be ready for many around us that quote-unquote profess Christ and claim to be a Bible-believing Christian to say, you know what, the pressure's too hot. It's easier to fall away. It's easier to abandon the confession. It's easier just to go with the flow. But as a church, if we're going to be faithful to the Scriptures and to our Lord, We've got to make a commitment, and we've made this commitment for years, but we've got to be strong in this commitment. As we move forward, will we have a strong confession where we're very clear on who we are and what we believe, especially for a world that wants to know and especially for the younger generation that's getting bombarded by the world? Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast. Hold fast that confession without wavering, without waffling, without backtracking, without watering it down. So the first thing as we move forward as a church, we need to hold fast to a strong confession. Be like Peter. In verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. Let it be known. We're going to make it known. We're not going to hide it. We want to be clear on where we stand. Okay, but there's a second thing that we need, and it's just as important. Not only do we need a strong confession, but secondly, as we move forward together, we need a sweet communion. Now, what do I mean by a sweet communion? Now, in the midst of Acts chapter 4, they're proclaiming the gospel with clarity. They're getting heat. They're getting arrested. But let's go back to Acts chapter 2 and let's look at the life of this church and what's going on in this church in the midst of all of this. So go back to Acts chapter 2. We're going to backtrack a little bit because it's the same church context. It's the early church in Jerusalem. What were they doing? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 This is the early church, right after Peter preaches at Pentecost, after 3,000 people got saved. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, 
the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, it's interesting in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the confession. They were holding fast to truth. But I want you to also notice what they devoted themselves to, to fellowship, to fellowship. It's the word koinonia. It means partnership. It means a close-knit relationship. Now, how are they expressing this partnership? Well, it says they were, they were breaking bread together, which means probably the Lord's Supper. They were meeting in homes and eating together. We, we have a common life together as Christians. We have a common Savior we have a common faith, we have a common mission, we have a common Bible, we, 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 we share things in common. And what's amazing is when you, when you walk into this place of all the different backgrounds and ages and, and diversity of ethnicity and socioeconomic and all those things that, that you bring into this place, when we come together, we're all united around Jesus. It's this deep, deep and sweet fellowship that we have as believers. They were breaking bread. There's something special about eating together as believers. When you have somebody into your home and you have them around your table and you can share a meal together. In that culture, it was a big deal to have somebody into your home. You know, as Baptists, you know what we've done? Fellowship can only happen in the fellowship hall. And it can only happen at a potluck. No, fellowship is more than just going to a room and eating. It's sharing life together. It's meeting needs. It's eating together. It's doing life together. Notice what they're doing there. Verse 44, all who believe were together and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, they all had things in common. I do not think there's another word that there's another word that has the word common in it, okay? Communism. Okay. This is not communism. Communism is forced compliance by the state to redistribute wealth. That's not what's going on here. They are voluntarily, generously sharing things with each other because they just loved each other. It wasn't compulsory. It wasn't forced. It wasn't legalistic. It was voluntary. In other words, it was a beautiful expression of gospel generosity. I've said this before, but let me say it again. In an ideal church... There should not be anybody with any need in church if we were doing this correctly. Nobody should have any needs. We should be meeting needs emotionally, spiritually, physically because we are one in Christ. Now here's where the rubber meets the road. As the world gets more chaotic and confusing, and scary, and maybe even threatening, 
we are going to need each other all the more. Russell, our elder, read this earlier, and I want you to focus on that one little phrase. It's meant a lot to me recently. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more. We don't know when that day's drawing near, but we're one day closer than we were yesterday to the end times, the second coming. But as the world gets more chaotic and it gets more oppressive and, and it gets more scary, we're going to need each other all the more to be a safe place, a place of encouragement, a place of love, a place where we can do life together, a safe harbor from the storm. But we can link arms together and we can be family to walk through this together. Let me just say this, I'm going to need you as much as you're going to need me. And we're going to all need each other. We need a safe place to practice what I call the gospel one another's. Well, what are the gospel one another's? I don't have time to go into great detail, but you know what these are. Love one another. Love one another. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. Love one another. Welcome one another, or accept one another. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Love one another. Welcome one another. Bear the burdens of one another. Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Are you are we bearing each other's burdens? Are we accepting and welcoming one another? Are we loving one another? Encourage one another. Hebrews 3.13, exhort or encourage one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage every day. Forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Pray for one another. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. As we continue to do these one another's on an ongoing basis in the life of our church, I believe the Holy Spirit will produce a sweetness of communion all the more. A sweetness, a just this, this wonderful fellowship. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard and on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. When we dwell in unity, when we dwell in fellowship, it's, it's sweet, it's, it's fragrant, it's refreshing. So as we move forward, we will need a strong confession. We will need a sweet communion. But there's a third thing. As we move forward together, let us move to forward together with a steadfast courage. Courage.
Let's keep reading back in Acts chapter 4. What happened? What did Peter say? I'm not backing down. I want you all to know where we stand with clarity. Go back to verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For then a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Verse 13, they saw the boldness. That word really means a freedom of speech that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're unhindered. The, the, the boldness, the speech just comes out. And they're astonished because these are uneducated men. Now, this doesn't mean that they were stupid or they lacked intelligence. What it meant is they didn't go to rabbi school. They didn't go to seminary. They weren't trained by the religious leaders. These were just common lay people. These were non-professionals who had such boldness, such clarity, didn't mince words. They, they were strong in their convictions. They knew what they believed, and they could articulate it. Wow. That's good news for you and me. Because let me just say this. Let me say this loud and clear. You do not have to go to Bible college or seminary to be bold for Jesus. If you've got a Bible and the Holy Spirit, that's all you need. If you share from your heart what God has done, who Jesus is, and you pray for boldness, God can do amazing things through people that the world will least expect. The person with the most lack of education, least significance, somebody that you look at yourself and say, I don't have anything to offer, you may just be the exact person God wants to use to do great things for his kingdom. If you're faithful to share, and you pray for boldness, and you ask God to empower you through the Holy Spirit, just think what God can do through you. Now, it's interesting. In verse 17 and 18, they threaten Peter and John. We're threatening you. Don't you dare speak about Jesus ever again. That's a threat. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't preach about Jesus. Don't be clear in your faith. Don't confess your faith. And I love, I love what, what they say. Verse 20. We cannot but speak 
of what we've seen and heard. We can't help but speak about this. Religious leaders, we're not going to be silent. You can't stop us from speaking about Jesus, even if you tried. We're not going down. We're not going to be silent. We're not going to slink away. We are going to be courageous. I can't think of any other time in recent history where we need courage on display from Bible-believing Christians. I want you to think about 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 15-16. Paul says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death, to another the fragrance from life, to life. Who's sufficient for these things? <laughs> Here's what Paul's saying. When you're clear in your confession, when you're bold and you're courageous, there are going to be some people that are drawn to that message and they're going to get saved. To others, you're going to smell like death. You're going to be the most offensive thing they've ever heard. And they're going to hate the message. So if people hate the message, what's the temptation? I don't want to share the message. I will water down the message. I won't be bold with my message. That's why Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? I mean, as your pastor, what do we want to see in northeastern Colorado in this community? Do we not want to see people get saved? Do we not want to see our community transformed? Do we not want to see marriages healed, children raised up in the, in the admonition of the Lord, our community transformed? We want to see God do things on display. We want to see wonderful things happen for the glory of God here. Do we not want to see that? Yes, but guess what's going to happen? When you begin seriously to do that, there will be opposition. And the temptation will be, let's just be silent. Let's just waver. I'm going to address the men here this morning. Men, Hebrews says all the more. All the more, men, we need you to step up to the plate and be the leaders God is calling you to be. Men, we need you to be men of strong confession, to hold fast to the truth no matter what. Men, we need you to create a culture of sweet communion. I know that's hard for men, but you've got to be the leaders in this. A culture of fellowship, a culture of helping, a culture of love. Men, you need to be on the front lines of having steadfast courage in the days to come. Because here's why. Your wives are looking to you for leadership. Your children are looking to you for leadership. Your grandchildren are looking to you for leadership. This church is looking for you for leadership. This community is looking for leadership. And this nation is looking for leadership. And if men of God don't stand up and lead, who will? Who will do it? Will it be said of the men of Emmanuel Baptist Church that we did not shirk our duty, but we stood up to the plate and we had courage now and for the next generation? 
1 Chronicles 12, 32. Very obscure passage of Scripture. Of the tribe of Issachar, men. What do these men have? Men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Men, let me ask you something. In the time that we're living, do you have wisdom of the times we're living in? Do, or do you understand the times? And do you know what ought to be done? I began my sermon by referencing John Bunyan, the author of the famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And most of you probably read part one that ends with Christian going to heaven, to the celestial city. Have you read part two? Christiana? And her children? In the second half, his wife, Christiana, gets saved, and their children get saved, and they go on the pilgrimage to, to heaven, to the celestial city, and they're being led by Greatheart, their tour guide. And they get to a fork in the road called Turnaway. Turnaway. And Turnaway leads to apostasy. Turnaway leads to a place where you're going to abandon the faith. And they see a man at Turnaway. He's all bloody, he's got a sword in his hand. He looks like he's, he's sweating. He's been through a lot. And the man introduces himself and says, My name is Valiant for Truth. I'm Valiant for Truth. And Valiant for Truth begins to explain how he was attacked by three enemies that were trying to pull him away from the faith. They were trying to get him to denounce the faith, to, to get him to, to denounce Christ. And he said, I had a Jerusalem blade, and I slay them with my Jerusalem blade. I killed him, and I'm bloody from the battle. And ultimately, in this allegory, valiant for truth is a picture of men of God who stand in the gap with the word of God and fight the battles, the battles that are bloody, the battles that have battle scars, those that are willing to face persecution. And it's interesting, at the end of the story, when everybody's getting ready to go into heaven and things are being said, Valiant for Truth has these parting words. This is what he says. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage, and my courage and skill to him that can get it, my marks and scars I carry with me, to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles, who now will be my reward. What's Valiant for Truth saying in his deathbed? I fought the battles for truth. And I'm going to hand the mantle, I'm going to hand my sword off to the next generation, that they too may fight those battles. And I've got battle scars. I've got wounds from the battle. I've taken the blows. But those blows are a reminder that I stood fast for Christ, and now I get to go to heaven and see him as my reward. We need men, mighty men, who are like valiant for truth. They'll fight the battle. They'll stand up, and they may get scars, and they may get bruised but they're doing it for the glory of God. They're doing it for their children. They're doing it for their church. They're doing it for their nation. So that young boys 
and young girls and young men and young women can look to those men and say, I want to follow them into battle so that the next generation can fight. If we don't fight now, and I don't mean physically fight, if we don't stand for truth now, who will? Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's my prayer for all of us. Would we move forward together as a church? Strong confession. Sweet communion. Steadfast courage. For the glory of Christ and in the power of Christ. Father, we come before you this morning. And we ask that this is a reality in our our lives. We want to be faithful. We want to be courageous. We want to be the people you've called us to be. Lord, I specifically pray for our our men. Lord, would, would you raise up godly courageous husbands who will love and lead their wives no matter what the cost. Lord, would you raise up men that would be godly fathers to lead their children? Lord, would you raise up godly grandfathers to lead their grandchildren? And Lord, I pray specifically right now for the women in our church that do not have a husband, the single moms that are doing their best to raise their kids in the Lord. Would you give them that strength as well? Give them that courage. Lord, moms and dads all need courage. Just because I address the men doesn't mean the women don't have to have that courage. But, but Lord, just do a work in our families. Do a work in our church. We want to be strong in our confession. Lord, we, we don't want to waffle on what we believe. We want to be clear. But Lord, we also want a sweet communion. Lord, we want to have that fellowship. We want to have that closeness. We want to have that, that family and those needs being met and that togetherness and, the, and those one another's. Lord, we want a culture of sweet communion. And Lord, we want a culture of steadfast courage. Help us be courageous for the days that come. Would we all be like the men of Issachar that understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do? We understand the times, and by your grace, we know what we ought to do. So give us the strength to do that and the grace to do that for your glory alone as we move forward together as a church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.